Mind Matter Media presents Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast, where discussions center around the most current and innovative approaches to landscape conservation and design. This is the show for stakeholders who want to adapt to the climate crisis, halt biodiversity loss, and change the world by designing sustainable and resilient landscapes through collaborative conservation action. Hey everyone, welcome to episode four of Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast. I'm your co-host, Rob Campoloni. And hi there, I'm your other co-host, Tom Ewald. Uh, Rob, so who do we have on deck this week? We have a really exciting episode ahead, Tom. Uh, Steve Markison, the founder and director of the Teton Wildfire Mitigation Team out of Jackson, Wyoming, is joining us to talk about large-scale wildland fire, how we got here, and where do we go from here in our efforts to build resilient landscapes that increasingly include communities that are built in the wildland urban interface. It's a real challenge. Yeah, right. Um, and, you know, we've kind of learned a lot about wildland fire over the, over the decades, and we know that it can be can be both a friend and it can, we know that it can be a foe. I think that's the, that's the way most people think of it. But uh, the environmental benefits are many. Um, having it at the right place at the right time can uh, induce all sorts of ecological benefits. And uh, we've learned that. But at the wrong place, the wrong time, wildfires can wreak havoc in communities, uh, threaten lives, homes, and uh, natural and cultural resources. Our listeners might recall that the podcast's first episode was devoted to the climate crisis as a major landscape change agent, particularly within the realm of the natural environment. And our second episode was devoted to the topic of adaptation, things that we could do to help the natural and human communities adapt and become more resilient to change. Today's episode is devoted to a specific aspect of adaptation, learning to live with wildland fire, specifically the conundrum of trying to sustain fire as an ecological process while designing communities and structures that are resilient to it. Yeah, you know, uh, I recall that conversation with Doug Parsons uh, that we had last time. You know, he's the host of a really great podcast, uh, America Adapts, and I'm sure fire touches upon uh, aspects of, of what he's talked about. And he, one of the things that he talked about uh, was the fifth national climate assessment. He has a whole podcast devoted to that. And, and learning about that um, for today's discussion with Steve um, is that the EPA created more than 50 different climate change indicators. One of those indicators, indicators was, was wildland fire, and uh, the EPA's climate change indicators website provides a great summary of information and data that they've compiled on wildland fire since all the way back to 1983. Uh, we'll drop a link to that site in the pod notes, but um, you know, I think we really thought that that was a, a useful data set that people could look and understand the history of, of fire in their area. You know, we don't want to devote the entire episode to data, but uh, I think providing a few fun facts or not so fun facts, really, as a foundation for our discussion with Steve might be helpful. So bear with me for a moment, Tom. I, I know not everyone is into data, but I think there's a important story to be told here. 
you know, first, that forests, shrublands, and grasslands cover more than half of the land area in the United States. So I think it could be interpreted to mean that there's a lot of potential fuel out there. Second, since 1983, the National Interagency Fire Center has documented an average of approximately 70,000 wildfires per year, which sounds like a lot of fire on the landscape, but you really have to consider the extent of acres burned more so than the number of fires. Third, you know, the extent of area burned each year has increased since the 1980s. And of the 10 years with the largest acreage burned, all have occurred since 2004. And they coincide with many of the warmest years on record. And lastly, the peak of the U.S. fire season typically occurred in August, but more recently uh, is now peaking in July. I think the take-home message is there's a lot of fuel on the landscape. There's a lot of fire on the landscape. There seems to be a correlation between temperature an extent of area burned, and the peak fire season is occurring earlier in the season, July versus August. If all that is true, and I'm sure Steve will speak to it, the question in my mind is, what are we going to do to combat it? You know, what's our plan? You and I, Tom, are planners, we're design, landscape designers. We need a plan. So hopefully Steve will help us with that. That's right. Yeah, we want to help. We want this information to help us plan for resilient landscapes is is kind of what us as uh, landscape conservation design uh, experts want to do. And so there's uh, I think that's uh, the appropriate question there, Rob. And and I'm sure that Steve has some thoughts on this. And so should I go ahead and and introduce Steve? Yeah, you bet. Right. So our our guest, Steve Markson, Markson from the Teton Wildfire Mitigation Team Consulting. Uh, formed that that group after working for the U.S. Forest Service for 27 years. He retired as the North Zone Fire Management Officer of the Bridger-Teton National Forest in 2020 and had several fire management positions during his tenure with the Forest Service. As a forest management officer, he designed and implemented landscape-level hazardous fuel mitigation projects throughout Teton County and the Bridger-Teton Forest. As uh, TWMT, an LLC principal, Steve carried his experience forward working with homeowners, HOAs, guest ranches, and fire departments. He's an independent contractor with coalitions and collaborators teaching community wildfire mitigation best practices courses nationwide. Steve values his relationships with community stakeholders, homeowners, natural resource managers, and government cooperators at all levels. Did I miss anything from your bio, Steve? Is there anything you'd like to add or, or highlight from that? Tom, you, you captured it all. It's great to be with uh, you and Rob today. Really appreciate you guys having me here. And we're really glad to have you here, Steve. Um, let's talk large-scale fire, huh? Yeah, it sounds good. I tell you what, you guys nailed the introduction. You know, the fact that we have increased fuel loads on the landscape, the extent of fire seasons and severity is something that I have witnessed in my 30-year career working with the fire service uh, and beyond. And yeah, it's, it's a conundrum. And it, there's, there's some things we can do to plan. And I'm a planner too, guys, and I'm still planning. 
uh, on different scales right now. So I want to talk about those different scales where, where I've been working the last 30 years. Before we do though, Steve, uh, do you have any perspective on the summary that I provided of the EPA's climate change indicators that there's a lot of fuel on the landscape and a lot of fire on the landscape and the correlation between temperature and extent burned and peak fire season, you know, occurring earlier in this in the season. Just any general thoughts about that? Maybe what's you know, some of the drivers or, or whatever. I'll just leave it wide open for you. We'll get down into the details uh, throughout our the course of our discussion today, but I thought that'd be a nice opening for you. Yes, Rob, I, I couldn't agree more with the data points you brought up from the EPA study. I mean, overall, there's numerous studies out there that show changes with climate, uh, flash drought and drought indexes uh, are the main driver of of not only increased fire weather, but just the extent of fire season on the landscape, the severity of fires that, that we witness now, uh, and the duration of fire season, like you said, um, you know, now stemming from starting in full fledge in July and running towards you know, August and even later in some areas. So those data points are correct. And I, there's a lot of studies out there to support that data. And my personal experience and my my counterparts who are, I fight fire with for years, we, we see the same thing on the landscape. It's pretty incredible how long fire season goes now. And and yeah, we need to start thinking about how what are the strategies? How are we going to plan for this uh, as land managers, but not only communities and homeowners? And I, I believe really strongly that the responsibility is on everyone, not just land managers, but homeowners who build uh, in the wildland urban interface and and the folks that want to live in forested areas. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, responsibility and a lot of work that needs to be done from from a lot of folks. Right. Yeah. I'm, you know, talking about kind of the shifting of the the fire seasons, I think that's really interesting. Does that mean that the duration of the peak season is getting longer? Um, it's shifted a month earlier and the overall duration is the same. I've noticed that many of the climate models indicate that weather seasons are are generally shifting, um, you know, now and then into the future. Do you predict that that is going to to shift with uh, fire seasons too? You know, I think in the short term, definitely, Tom. You know, lo- if you look at long-term fire on the landscape, I mean, it's been cyclical uh, for hundreds of years. But really, the biggest conundrum now is that we're building so much uh, in the wildland-urban interface, and communities are extending now into areas that are forested and have a significant fuel load. So that's really posing uh, much more of a challenge, even with the longer duration and the data, the data that supports that climate is a main driver, you know, severity and duration of, of fire. Really, it comes down to now is the, the, it's critical that we, we design communities that are, you know, adapted. And, and really, you, you mentioned it also, you, I listened to your podcast with Doug Parsons, and he was great. He made reference to fire resilient communities and adaptation. And that's really what my my work is focusing on now with communities and homeowners. But I do want to talk about the work I did with the Forest Service, you know, restoring and maintaining fire resilient landscapes as well. Well, let me give you an opportunity to speak to that, Steve. You know, as you know, our podcast is about landscape conservation. And 
We've devoted the first three episodes to the climate crisis, including this one. You know, the climate crisis as a, a multifaceted change agent on the landscape. We've been trying to build a case that the complexity of the climate crisis combined with the increasing rate of biodiversity loss uh, together constitute a, a wicked problem. You know, and that's a technical term in our field, uh, but um, that that wicked problem requires a new approach to planning. And within our realm of landscape design, you know, I'm just I'm wondering if that's also applicable to your realm as well. I I know that the fire community is now working under the auspices of the National Cohesive Strategy. Uh, precisely because the the fire community realized that fires were getting bigger and hotter and stronger and faster and occurring more often and and uh, that and a, a national coordinated approach was needed. Um, that's very similar to what Tom and I are saying about our profession as conservation planners and landscape designers that the problems we're encountering, uh, whether they be social, ecological, economic, or all those things you know, combined, are, are getting more complex and intertwined. And as a result, we need a new strategy. That strategy is often thought of in our field as landscape conservation. And you know, this idea of diverse stakeholders coming together in some identified landscape and and you could define you know that landscape any way you want ecosystem ecoregion watershed whatever and you know that those stakeholders work collaboratively to develop strategies to further landscape sustainability and by sustainability i mean an overall condition of low vulnerability and high resilience. That's that's kind of the, the standard that I use. You know, a common problem that landscape stakeholders are, are having in our field is when and, and where they come together, you know, when and where they do come together as a collaborative is that they lack a holistic, you know, systems thinking, science-based approach that helps them develop a game plan for advancing sustainability in, in their landscapes. And I think that's where the cohesive strategy could help as a, a real life example of a nationwide coordinated approach to address a wicked problem. Can you introduce our listeners to the cohesive strategy maybe in, uh, within the context of, of what I've provided in this admittedly long-winded windup, <laughs> yeah, that was great, Rob. Yeah, <laughs> that was well said and really captured. You know, I understand your process and planning and landscape conservation, and it mirrors, and and I believe it's really identical to what we do in wildland fire management and uh, and the national uh, cohesive fire management strategy. So let, let me talk about that a bit. I'm glad you bought, brought it up. So the the National Cohesive Fire Management Strategy is an effort that was uh, initiated in 2010 
Um, the initial strategy was finalized in 2014, and it and it's refreshed every five years. And it was a Department of Interior, U.S. Department of Agricultural effort with inter intergovernmental um, committee, the Wildland uh, Fire Leadership Council, and it provides the complete strategy for planning for wildland fire. And it really is the framework for everything that I've been doing the last 30 years and, and still to this day, but I've been shifting on some of the tenants. Now, let me share what those three tenants are. And, and we're going to kick one of them out of the door and we're going to focus on two of them. So the three tenants are to improve safe and effective wildfire response. Um, that one's easy. We have an incredible national infrastructure for responding to fires uh, now longer duration fires, like we talked about, the challenges of community build out in forested areas and, and the heavy fuel loading. So that one, um, that one we just have been dealing with for a long time and we do a good job and we probably do too good of a job because, you know, we've been suppressing fires for a long time and that has also resulted on the fuel buildup on the landscape. So that one there, you know, that's, I'm not going to focus on, uh, on our discussion today on safe and effective wildfire response. The other two uh, tenants are to create fire-adapted communities, communities that are prepared, communities that uh, understand the role of fire on the landscape and living with fire, living with smoke, things that Doug mentioned in, in the last episode with you guys. And then the third tenant is to restore and maintain fire-resilient landscapes. And it's pretty incredible the work that not only federal and state agencies, but communities and fire departments and across the country as a whole, all of these interagency agencies, but also non-governmental agencies and municipalities have adopted these, these strategies to move the process forward. And so at the, at the, at the greater level, on the national level, all of the stakeholders includes tribes, Park Service, the DOI agencies, Forest Service, but also, you know, that kind of bumps down to the local level, level where we have a lot of different collaboratives that work at the local level with the same identified stakeholders. So, for instance, in my area, we have the Teton Area Wildfire Protection Coalition that's been going for oh, 20 years here. Uh, and that's the Wyoming State Forestry, the local fire departments the fire managers like myself for years, and we design strategies for the landscape for the greater Yellowstone area where I work that are that fall under the cohesive strategy. So that cohesive strategy gives us the context for, for making stakeholder uh, decisions and, and it drives the whole stakeholder process similar to what you guys are talking about. Uh, great. Thanks for that uh, overview. Now, you, you mentioned that a, a key component, one of the three key components is restore and maintain fire resilient landscapes. For folks that maybe don't quite understand, uh, you know, what, what a fire resilient landscape looks like, could you kind of break that down a little bit and provide a little bit of color on what that, that might mean? We're really fortunate here in the greater Yellowstone that we've had a lot of opportunities to restore and maintain fire resilient landscapes. And what does that mean? It, it basically means allowing fire to play its natural role on the landscape while still providing for public safety and the protection of resources. So for example, as I was a fire management officer for many years, say we, we'd get a, a barrage of lightning that would come through the Bridger Teton forest and we'd get 
you know, 10 or 12 starts a day uh, in uh, on the forest and surrounding Jackson Hole. I would have to make decisions uh, what, what we're going to do and how we're going to manage each one of those lightning strikes. And I don't mm-hmm. do that in a vacuum. I would do that with my park service counterparts, uh, the fire chief and, and Jackson, along with the emergency managers and, and Wyoming State Forestry. So, for example, the, the fires that were close to communities, uh, that's where the safe and effective, effective wildfire response would come in. We, those were just too much liability to allow to play the, the natural role in the landscape. We put those out. But other ones that are deeper into the wilderness, they might be designated wilderness areas or areas that's just continuous um, non-wilderness, roadless areas. Uh, we would look at strategies and we already have plans in place on how we allow those fires to actually play out on the landscape so we're not suppressing them. You know, we can allow thousands of acres to burn and then it would, when it gets to a trigger point, say a road um, that leads to a community, then that's our trigger point to kind of slow it down. So we're actually allowing some fires to do their, their part on the landscape. That's the first part. The second part is introducing fire by, uh, by prescribed burning on the landscape, which has been happening in North America for, you know, for, for a long, long time with, with indigenous peoples. And still today, uh, we have a great partnership with agencies and the tribes to continue that um, native burning. So, yeah, we have a really robust um, prescribed burn program in Teton Interagency Fire to the fact that we're not, we're not just, you know, we don't just have our suppression crews that put fire on the ground and, and prescribe burning, but we also have ecological fire crews that go out. They collect data uh, and fire science on fire effects after we, you know, implement prescribed burn project. It's really incredible. We've got the opportunity to do that here because we have so much a forested area and so much kind of non-roadless area and not it's not all built out so that's great here but you know if you're looking at like areas surrounding salt lake city or southern california the challenge to put fire on the ground and restore um, resilient landscapes it's a lot more challenging and then lastly just the fire resilient part means that you know when fires come through and they burn depending on any severity that they burn and any duration that that landscape can bounce back and recover in a healthy way and, and just reestablish as a, as a healthy ecosystem. And I'll give one more case in point is you look at the 88 fires of Yellowstone and in the early 90s, we'd drive through there and take visitors through there and everyone would say, oh, this area just looks decimated. You know, it just burns so hot. And that's the kind of fire regime that, that greater Yellowstone or that Yellowstone is. But you drive through there now, 36, 30 plus years later, and it looks fantastic. And it, it's a fire resilient landscape. Fire is part of the ecosystem. It's bounced back and it's handling, you know, whatever, whatever problems that that's thrown at it in, in a healthy way. So that's, that's what that means, Tom. Hopefully that's, that's clarification enough for the listeners. What if we could rescue the planet from the ravages of the climate crisis and, in the process, save a million species from extinction? Would we do it? Former U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Senior Policy Advisor for the National Wildlife Refuge System, Robert Campoloni, explores the United States' most pressing conservation challenge since Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, the triple planetary crisis, pollution, climate boiling, and biodiversity loss. 
in Designing Nature's Half, a practical guide to conserve 50% by 2050, Campoloni reveals previous nationwide initiatives to design sustainable and resilient landscapes, provides an easy-to-follow how-to guide for taking a collaborative, science-based approach to identify conservation actions across large landscapes, and advocates for taking a third nationwide try to design nature's half. Learn how to take a synergistic approach to mitigating the climate crisis and conserving biodiversity in Designing Nature's Half, a practical guide to conserve 50% by 2050 and be part of the global movement to save the planet. For more information, visit www.designingnatureshalf.com. about things, practices like uh, thinning, forest thinning to reduce uh, potentially catastrophic wildfires, that would that fit into the fire resilient landscape? Or is that where, where else does that fit into the strategy? Yeah, that's a great question. It does. But I'll tell you what, you know, I've implemented thousands and thousands of acres of thinning on the forest to kind of prepare communities for fire. Um, but we're not going to cut our way out of this, this conundrum. Yeah. Uh, and here's here's an example. You know, it's really helpful if we can put like a fuel break by thinning uh, small diameter trees and thinning uh, the lower limbs around communities and then take actions within the community. That might help slow the fire front down if it's coming to that community. Um, but that will only be successful if uh, the treatment has been maintained uh, if firefighters are on scene and ready to accept the flame front as it lowers from the crowns of the trees to the ground, uh, and then, you know, resources can take advantage of that fuel break. So, boy, there are some incredible grants out there right now. And I, I just, I really want to uh, just highlight the Biden administration for um, the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act. They've got some incredible grant opportunities right now through the USDA Forest Service, the Department of Energy, and through FEMA um, that allow for a, a great deal of landscape treatments. And that would be either thinning, like we just talked about, supporting large landscape level prescribed burning, which really promotes fire resilient landscapes. And then also for planning, uh, those, those grants through the infrastructure legislation provide for uh, renewing uh, community wildfire protection plans in counties and communities throughout the whole United States. And so there's some incredible work being done. So thinning can help. Um, I, I would say more prescribed burning is the part that that restores resilient landscapes uh, and gets fire back on the, the landscape and thinning can help. But, you know, we're not going to cut our way out of this this fire problem. And and that would that would shift me next to talking about uh, fire adapted communities and the responsibility of homeowners that that'd be a next one to kind of pivot to can, can before we go there can I ask one more question do you think that the prescribed fire um, uh, practice is being more accepted is there are there limitations to what we can do with that right now or uh, my sense that it's it hasn't quite hit the major least yet in terms of a practice or, or maybe I'm completely wrong I'm interested on your uh, take it's, on that Tom, it's getting there, but there's always setbacks. You look at the Hermit Peak fire. Um, uh, I forgot the name of the other one. The Hermit's Peak down in east of Santa Fe last year that was just so yeah. devastating. It was a prescribed burn. That that sets back the prescribed burn program. But I do think throughout the country there is 
a great deal more of prescribed burning happening. Um, and there are a great deal of successes, but it's those unfortunate like 1% yeah. uh, that get lost that really tarnish the program. I will say too, if you look at like Southeastern United States, the, culturally they've been burning for a long, long time. And just based on their fuel type and, and pocassin and the type of um, vegetation, they have to burn every three to five years. Because they've been burning for so long culturally in the Southeast, it's really accepted. So the risk appetite in the Southeast is much greater and it's much more accepted uh, mm. throughout that area. Um, there's parts in the United States, like, you know, say the Northern Rockies, where we have a lot more territory and people are used to smoke. Yes, prescribed burning is, is more acceptable. But then you look at areas, you know, maybe in the Northwest uh, or California that are more populated and the, the risk acceptance is a little less. So there's challenges for sure. Yeah. So Steve, um, sounds like you're leaning towards prescribed burns as kind of the way to manage catastrophic fire um, and less so, you know, thinning and, and cutting I imagine that the, the technique used for prescribed burn is potentially alarming to communities, either within the community or on the outskirts of the community. If that assumption is correct, Steve, um, how do you how do you work around that? If that is the the desired approach, and it's becoming increasingly harder to get the correct conditions. To, to use that approach, plus you have the community pushing back on you, how do you still do it? Yeah, that's the great planning challenge, right? Uh, you've got to get everyone involved. You know, we get ranchers involved. Uh, you know, we have a, a lot of the community members of the HOAs, uh, the rural community leaders, the Wyoming State Forestry, the tribe representatives. All of these folks uh, come on board for whatever collaborative uh, process that you've initiated for those projects. You know, it could be part of uh, the NEPA process if it's if it's laid out in a, an environmental assessment or environmental impact statement, and those stakeholders are brought in, or through the community wildfire protection plan that I spoke of, where you're bringing all those stakeholders in at the initial stage and. And really, I've learned you can't just tell folks what you're going to do. You've got to work with them, get them on board, uh, get them to work within your strategy and, and even with implementation uh, and get people out on the ground and, and, and looking at units and seeing, you know, what you're doing and, and why. I'll give you an example again. Um, I worked on this large fuels reduction project just west of Jackson Hole on the, uh, on the Wilson front, the little town of Wilson. And in that in that NEPA document, we planned out not only thinning close to homes, but then tied into that adjacent would be larger landscape level prescribed burning. And we brought um, numerous community leaders into Teton uh, Area Wildfire Protection Coalition during that process. And not just with public meetings, but workshops where they're seeing uh, what we're planning and, and then we help uh, or we use uh, their perspective and we use their information to validate our data for their communities and really get them involved in the process. Uh, and then, you know, the implementation is that much more easier. Now, with that being said, we, we've been implementing that project for the last oh, seven years 
10 years now. You can also build on those. If we're doing something on the federal side of the fence, there's numerous uh, state grants that are available for communities to do uh, actions on their lands that are adjacent on the other side of the fence. We use either the Good Neighbor Authority or um, Communities Assistant to Forest Adjacent Lands, and that's another grant opportunity. So we have uh, uh, an incredible grant that's uh, two grants that were right next to our federal projects that are now uh, they're they're doing thinning. They're not doing prescribed burning, but they're doing thinning on, in their communities, and really it builds a lot of momentum on both sides of the fence. You could understand uh, the community would be more uh, willing and interested in doing thinning than uh, prescribed burn. Is it actually the strategy to do thinning uh, closer to the communities and prescribed burning farther out? Yeah, that it is, Rob. You can actually do small diameter thinning and limbing up from below in the communities and then pile all those piles in, in the summer and burn them in the fall. So you, you're still, you're still burning, but you know, so you're not, you're not doing, you're not even doing selective harvesting. You're just doing uh, thinning from below type uh, strategy in the community. And then as you work out from the community, you might do a little bit more selective tree thinning with smaller diameter and a little more of a, a fuel break. And then beyond that fuel break, uh, you know, large, uh, larger and relatively speaking units of prescribed burning. So, so if you have fire that's coming in from, from the hinterlands way deep into the wilderness and it, and it bumps up against the prescribed burning areas, it, it really, it's like a speed bump and it slows down. And then you've got some areas to fall back on right next to the community, you know, to take aggressive action if it's, if it's uh, threatening the community past the fuel break. And if I heard you correctly, you were talking about actually bringing those stakeholders, bringing the community into the process of implementation. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. We just, um, my, my company, and I, I married up with a, another engineering firm in Jackson. We wrote the Community Wildfire Protection Plan for Sublet County down in Pinedale, two hours south of Jackson, two years ago. And part of our stakeholder process was one, we involved the uh, Sublet County Forest Collaborative, and that's a, a big stakeholder group of, of different entities and the public. And then when we held six public meetings, excuse me, at fire stations, we brought all the public in to validate a lot of the data that we had, um, had were proposing and collected kind of the baseline data uh, for strategies for these communities. Um, in Sublet County. So yeah, we're bringing everyone to the table, Rob. And, and I really try to design public meetings like that, stakeholder meetings where we're not just getting up and saying, this is what we plan to do. We have uh, different baseline data um, and, our, and our actions that, that kind of start the, the conversation. And everyone's involved in a workshop format to either add additional actions or validate their um, their community data and it gets them more involved. So I feel pretty, I feel really, that was a great success in Sublet County when we did that. Yeah, this sounds like such a great parallel to uh, kind of how we think about landscape conservation design, but you're dealing with something that is definitely uh, much higher risk and probably something that is more timely, you know, if you're looking at people's lives and, uh, you know, things that might be very imminent, you know, biological conservation could take you know, decades to where you see those things. But I think this is a great 
kind of model for us to to think about of how you get that feedback from the local levels. And then you talked about multiple scales. Um, and so it sounds like you're, you know, the, the local level is a scale and then you have scales of uh, organization above that that are, are looking up at broader spatial scales. Is that is that about right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's kind of watershed, um, the watershed wildfire crisis landscapes now that have been set up kind of a tier under the cohesive strategy in the last, oh, I think it's been like seven years now. And these are greater kind of bioregional watershed-based uh, landscapes that are the high-risk areas. They've been identified through, you know, fire modeling, uh, fire behavior modeling, and risk modeling. And those are kind of the high high areas of, of, of focus right now that are, are not at the national level, more at the regional and, and, and kind of greater watershed area. From my perspective in my career, so I talked about these larger landscape level treatments, prescribed burning and some thinning closer to communities. But I've really um, switched in my current position now as a consultant working with homeowners. I'm really trying to get homeowners and communities to take responsibility for, for living you know, in the forested environment. And that's really the third pillar of the cohesive strategy, which is creating fire adapted communities. It, it falls right in line with your guys' Uh, efforts and and design um, and process and kind of what Doug was talking about last uh, last podcast. Well, go ahead, uh, follow up on that, Steve. It sounds like you have more to to say to that. Yeah, I think you know the the, the kind of the wildland disasters that we're seeing they're they're not really just a wildfire problem, guys. You know, wildfire is a natural process on the landscape. I've said that a couple times. But really, the, the, the challenge comes with the increased population, the increased build out in, in a lot of western areas, but also in the southeast and, and the eastern seaboard. And, you know, we've got to design communities. We've got to design homes that are resilient to fire, that, that can withstand embers being lofted, you know, one to seven miles from a fire front landing on your porch. And catching the you know the the deck on fire or going through your vents, and that's really the focus now. You know, as I'm now no longer a federal land manager, uh, I'm working at the community scale and trying to create and design actual fire adapted communities. And what does that look like, Steve? I mean, uh, are you are you talking about new technologies that we use to build homes that are fire resistant, or something other? Exactly, new technologies. Um, one of the first things is building codes. Um, we have a wildland urban interface building code in Teton County that we adopted in 2005. There's other places throughout the West. California has a, a wildland urban interface building code. The Northwest is just starting to adopt it at the state level. Colorado's adopting in Utah. So these building codes require uh, certain building materials that are um, science tested to be, you know, fire re, uh, resistant, uh, but also, you know, simple things like changing your roof from a cedar shake roof, which is highly flammable, to um, an asphalt single uh, shingle roof or other types of uh, materials that are, you know, non-combustible, like a metal roof or, or something like that. 
There's a lot of different techniques. Uh, one really simple one for homeowners is changing their eave vents, their gable vents, and their uh, foundation uh, ventilation from quarter-inch screening to one-eighth or one-thirty-second-inch screening, uh, which has been shown in in, in you know science-based um, uh, um, laboratories, uh, fire science laboratories to not accept embers when you have that small of, uh, of, of a screen size. That's one area that's a really affordable way for homeowners to convert their home to be a little more fire resilient. Uh, another way is uh, diff different decking materials that are non-combustible or just cleaning out materials from underneath our decks, which we all like to store stuff, uh, moving um, firewood from against your foundation to 30 feet out from your home and then doing a, a lot of maintenance around the zero to five foot zone or the zero to 30 foot zone around your home. That'd be vegetation management or, um, or, or other types of you know, structure management. I'm big into di disturbance ecology. And you, know, you, you take one thing away and nature is gonna balance out, right? So we suppress fire so much since the early 1900s with a kind of full suppression policy that We've got this, you know, we've got unhealthy forests in so many places. And so other, other disturbances come in. Um, and, you know, I'll be, I'll be skiing at the ski area, looking at just decimated uh, white bark pine. And, and folks will talk to me and say, oh, isn't that, isn't that horrible? Look at the, you know, all the, the tree devastation from white bark pine. And, and I, would, I would just educate them that, yeah, we've suppressed fire for so long that now we've got a, a bark beetle epidemic and the bark beetle that's come to the Northern Rockies is, you know, endemic to the Northern Rockies. It's not an invasive species. And so you see these, you know, huge swaths of um, dead forests, dead standing forests. And really it's disturbance ecology. It's just another, it's another, it's another disturbance that to put yeah. mosaic or a different patchwork on the landscape. And, uh, and we're seeing a lot more of that, just the checks and balances of, of nature, um, you know, compensating for, for the, a lack of disturbance for the last hundred years on the landscape. The key is that not just to educate people, but to motivate them to take action. And yeah, I kind of, my thought on that is just continue to build partnerships to work collaboratively across boundaries, across jurisdictions. That's what it's going to take. And like you guys said, it's the stakeholder process. And really, yeah, the process of dealing with the wildfire uh, crisis is the same uh, that you guys are, are promoting as far as biodiversity and, and, and conservation, um, you know, landscape conservation and conservation biology. So, yeah, it's been really great talking with you guys. What a, what a, what a great opportunity. And like kind of my parting thoughts would be, you know, for your listeners and for folks that live and fire prone areas to reach out, reach out to local agencies, reach out to your local fire department, uh, reach out and get involved with any, any collaborative or stakeholder group in your community that's, that's working towards, you know, working towards fire adapted communities or, or building um, fire resilient landscapes or a prescribed burn association. Uh, there's a lot of them in the country now that are starting up and doing small scale prescribed burns. And so, yeah, I just recommend to your listeners to reach out, get, get educated, and then uh, take action to mitigate and be prepared. And um, 
you know, learn to live with fire and, and, and design your, your communities in that regard. That's a great suggestion, Steve. Thanks so much. Tom, do you have anything, any parting thoughts to share? I uh, know it, it was just uh, great to hear the strategies that uh, Steve is talking about. They, I, Like I said earlier, I think they align with generally how we think about biodiversity, although I think we have a slow moving uh, a train wreck, maybe more so than, than fire across the landscape. So I think there's a lot that we can learn. And also, you know, a big part of any uh, kind of natural resource conservation fire we should be thinking about how to get outside of our silos and work with people in different uh sections of the natural resource world fire water biodiversity and and how to get out of those silos and uh, do collaborative planning so i think this is a great uh, conversation that that builds towards that thanks again to our guest steve markison and thank you our listeners for tuning in to designing nature's half the Landscape Conservation Podcast. I've been your co-host, Rob Campoloni. And I've been your other co-host, Tom Mewald. Join us again every two weeks for another informative episode of Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast. Thank you. Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast is researched, written, edited, and produced by Rob Campoloni and Tom Mewald. Lucas Gallardi created the Designing Nature's Half cover art and logo design. Tom Askin is the voice behind the intro and outro. And the music was written and performed by composer Alexi Kistlin via Pixabay. Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast, is a proud member of Mind Matter Media, a startup multimedia network whose mission is to change the world by designing sustainable and resilient landscapes for people, planet, and prosperity.